Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode 91 of Energy Talks, and today I'm going to be speaking to Karthik Subra-Nanian. He's a research associate at Lux and a co-author of Can We Make It to 1.5C?, a breakdown of the IPCC's climate mitigation plan, and he joins us from Amsterdam. So welcome to the interview, Carter. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Now, I uh, listeners will know that I, I put a little effort into properly pronouncing uh, my guests' names, last, particularly last names. And uh, Karthik and I did practice a bit, and he gave me some coaching, and I still flubbed it, so my apologies, Karthik. Uh, that's no problem. Look, uh, this is is very interesting because I'm starting to see a little chatter about, you know, uh, in amidst amidst the gloom and doom of the climate crisis that maybe we have a chance. And and the intergovernment, so the IPCC released its third installment of the sixth assessment report. Now, this is back in spring. Uh, which, but this one focuses on mitigation of climate change. So let's ask, I want to ask you the question, can we make it to 1.5C? Um, well, it looks bleak, doesn't it? If you see the way we are operating right now, uh, the uh, short answer would obviously be no, we're not going to make it to 1.5C. But that said, there are still opportunities for us to get there. I think right now we are at a stage where it's not technology that's driving policy innovation, but the other way around. So if you look at technologies like, say, solar energy, wind energy, any low carbon power source, we are at that state where they're all mature. And the question right now is about volumes of deployment rather than energy efficiency and those power conversion metrics. So policies are ultimately going to be the major driver that's going to get us there. Well, let's talk about that, because um, here's my argument. And, and I'll get you to respond to this. The, the Many of the major technologies that we're relying upon to decarbonize uh, have very long roots in this energy transition. You know, you can go back to solar commercial solar panels in the 70s and wind turbines in the 80s and the lithium ion battery in the early 90s and, and the first commercial uh, uh, electric vehicle, you know, uh, 1990 with the GM concept car, those sorts of things. So the this energy transition didn't start yesterday. It started decades ago. And the technologies have been progressing quite uh, regularly and, and steadily uh, along the S-curve. Many of them are either just at uh, or just, just about to hit the inflection point, are at the inflection point, or have passed the inflection point in the adoption process. That's very good news because the next part of the curve is the the straight part. 
where you're, you know, it's the hockey, it's the handle of the, of the hockey stick where you get very rapid growth. So we've been bemoaning the lack of deployment now for, for a number of years, but it strikes me that we're now in the disruptive decade of the energy transition and many of the technologies we need like electric vehicles, like wind and solar are, are the, the adoption is incredibly rapid. I mean, the, the auto industry, and we'll get into this in a little more detail later, but the auto industry is absolutely being transformed right before in almost real time. You know, I saw a Reuters story uh, uh, last week that said that between now and 2030, the auto industry is going to spend $1.2 trillion globally to convert to electric vehicle manufacturing. And it includes battery plants and critical mineral mining and, and all sorts of things. But that's an amazing number. And it's all going to happen in a very short period of time. So my outlook on this is not nearly as bleak because while I, I acknowledge that buildings and industry are not as far along the S-curve as transportation and the power sector, uh, there's still a fair amount of work that's being done and technologies being de developed and deployed. So that's my very long-winded take on this, which leads me to be less bleak uh, than perhaps you are. What? What? How do you respond to to that argument? Um, I mean, the biggest point you mentioned about the automakers specifically, and and the fact that countries are now looking at mass EV deployments. Again, that comes down to policy, isn't it? I think there was a lot of inertia initially from governments to drive change. Like you say, it is less bleak now. As a researcher, you tend to usually be skeptical about new technological innovations that come out. I sort of fall in the other category and, and I'm sort of an optimist where I try to give other technologies a chance. Um, in terms of, you know, like batteries and stuff like that, I think people really questioned how we're gonna get there. Um, and policy is getting us there. But, and even if you look at the IPCC's uh, report, you know, it was all about getting your, or hitting the mark for, let's say, the nationally defined contributions to the NDCs, wasn't it? Um, if you ask me really, those NDCs will not mean anything specifically until we get those targets. Um, if, for example, I feel developed countries are in a much better position to get there, maybe not so developing countries. Now, I come from a place where people are still struggling to, you know, make ends meet to have food. Their thoughts will not exactly be on sustainability, but would rather be on just getting through the day. So if so, if you go to an Indian or, or someone from a develop or from a developing economy and tell them, why don't you switch to an electric scooter? He's gonna be like, well, I don't have money to you know purchase an electric scooter right now. So the question really then comes down to, we have these policies now, but can policies help scale these technologies to get there? Then maybe five, six years down the line, if we are able to see those cost reductions, like I think back in the day, people said, you know, batteries are really going to make a big difference when we are, you know, hitting that $100 per kilowatt hour mark. And if policies and scale can bring us down to those values, and we're already seeing that to an extent. So ultimately, it's down to that, isn't it? If we can get those prices down quick enough, then maybe in the next five, 10 years, we'll be able to reach those targets. I guess what I'm doing here is I'm revealing my bias as someone who lives in an industrial uh, country with a high income and a, and and that is is more likely to decarbonize uh, 
you know, be able to adopt these technologies faster than someone, you know, like the example that you used in India. So fair enough. I, I admit that bias. And it, you know, it gives me uh, rose colored glasses uh, when other, you know, I should be, I sh should be aware of the fact that there are billions of people in other countries who don't have those opportunities. Okay. So acknowledged. Um, so the IPC says we have to reduce energy emissions between 35% and 52% before 2030. We're not doing very well on, on our short-term targets for sure. Uh, but the overarching message of the report, according to your study, says that limiting warming to 1.5C is still within reach, but requires immediate and drastic action. Of course, uh, it's uh, down to different aspects, isn't it? If you look at the first aspect, it's about mass deployments of renewable energy sources, especially wind and solar. If you look at most uh, decarbonization pathways, they involve solar and wind. And I guess that's natural given the fact that they are very mature technologies that are being produced at scale. Um, if you look at a lot of countries like Scotland and the United States, they're looking at leasing areas for offshore wind turbines, floating offshore wind turbines with large capacities, that's a way to get there. Another option, obviously, is to look into carbon removal. I think we are at that stage now where we know that, you know, we are not, we are not able to reduce emissions with the tools we have. So the ultimate objective is to capture carbon. And I think that will be an important pathway to also get us there. Right. And we'll, we'll address those issues in more uh, detail in just a moment. But I want to talk about two surprises that you identified in the report, and both of them are quite interesting. Uh, the first one is that the uh, IPCC is now all in on electric transportation, which they were not in the in the past. There there was room for hydrogen and 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 other kinds of other kinds of fuels, and I think this gets back to the conversation you and I just had about how the auto, global auto industry is being transformed because it's happening faster. Well, I, I haven't I haven't met an analyst yet or an economist or anybody, the people that I interview who said, oh yeah, no, I foresaw I foresaw the big expansion of the last two or three years. Everybody is was really taken aback and by the speed with which this uh the transformation is happening. Uh and so my point here, I guess, is that unexpected good surprises uh, that happen like that with with the auto industry uh, allow then allow the uh, IPCC uh, analysts to be more optimistic than they might have been, say, two or three years ago. Yeah, that is true. Um, definitely, for sure, I feel one place where the IPCC this is not something they could control, obviously, was the war Russia, you know, has started in Ukraine and how that, of course, affects material costs. And maybe it so happens that battery prices go up and then we see a downward trend in EV demand uh, remains to be seen. Um, but in terms of electrification, generally, when it comes to transport, I always take it with a pinch of salt. Um, as an analyst, I also look at, you know, solar electric vehicles, which could reduce range anxiety, for example, and you have companies like Lightyear and Sono Motors that, you know, want to do that. The only issue I have with, you know, those kind of use cases, say, for example, with solar EVs and stuff, is how can you prove that you're able to get tangible range improvements in all locations across the world? Because you need a lot of data. Um, locations vary and, you know, your yield varies and it's not just a back of the hand calculation. 
Um, that's the first aspect. The second aspect when it comes to long duration transport is batteries are not the best option when it comes to energy density, when you have other energy storage sources. So the question will be, can you, I mean, it, it sounds pointless to me to have a, a truck carrying a trailer full of batteries to go 3000 kilometers, you know, it, it's it's just not gonna happen. So I guess that's the thing, the second thing we should look at, is it possible for us to get there? And I believe that won't be the case. We might require other forms of uh, fuels, maybe sustainable fuels, alternative fuels to get us there, maybe not batteries. And that's why we definitely see that as a surprise. Well, let me push back on batteries a little bit for a couple of reasons. So for instance, on the long haul freight, I just had an expert on here uh, who we were talking about hydrogen for long haul transportation. And he claimed, and I haven't had a chance to check it yet, but he claimed that 75% of miles hauled in North America are not at, they're at full, the trailer is at full volume. It is not at full weight. Now they could, could be, could, you know, they're, they're hauling something that takes up a lot of space, but it doesn't have a lot of weight to it, furniture, or I don't know what it could be, but mm -hmm. regardless. And so in that, it, given that that's the case, the ability to carry extra weight on batteries becomes much less of an issue. So that's, that's number one. So there are some, you know, technical issues. But this, the second is the, the tremendous innovation that's taking place in, in batteries. So the uh, uh, Bloomberg NEF says that the battery energy density rises by an average of 7% a year. So, you know, I mean, in 10 years, we're going to have 70, the, we're going to have batteries that get 70%, go 70% longer uh, or further uh, with the same weight. And nobody expects that long haul trucking is going to be electrified tomorrow, but as batteries improve, and then of course we've got technical innovations coming, like solid-state electrolytes and sil uh, high silicon anodes, and all sorts of things that are, will will improve not only improve energy density, but also improve uh, the the time uh, lower the the time required to charge a battery and do it and do it safely. So I I'm a more optimistic on this point than you. I, I think that there are enough technical innovations in the pipeline that that could solve those the, the issues around long haul freight and and to some extent medium and and regional freight uh, in let's say the next five to ten years. Um, I do see where you're coming from, uh, but then uh, for me it's it's all down to the cost as well. Um, you know, because of the material issues we are seeing right now, um, if we are able to get those, uh, like I said, I am an optimist, so I hope this does happen. But the real question comes down to by when can we achieve this? Um, and that will be down to a lot of geopolitical factors that we are still, you know, that they are intangibles that we cannot control, right? So ultimately, it, it will come down to that. And, and I hope that does happen. But I would still take that with a pinch of salt and, and still hope for other forms of, you know, fuels maybe to help us get to long duration trans long transport. Well, as you said, I think skepticism is a is a good tool for an analyst to have in his toolbox. So we'll we'll give you that. We'll concede that point. <laughs> Uh, the second surprise, and this is a raging debate on my social media accounts, is social shifts required to move to 1.5C, because there are a fair amount of folks out there who are absolutely on the, the economic degrowth 
side of the argument and believe that we need to we need to get out of cars and shift to, to active transportation like bicycles and to take public transportation a lot construction of a lot more transportation um the diet you know we i, I tony seba from rethink x they've they've done uh, some work on this and uh, in typical seba's fashion you know it's they don't just make a point it's they make the point that you know this new technology will transform civilization you know so that it, we take the uh, uh tony's uh tendency to hyperbole uh but but nevertheless our ability to make protein in 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 labs and to make protein in factories as opposed to you know having to grow livestock uh is not to be taken lightly i think there's a there's a big opportunity there uh and changing consumer behavior you know as buy less and and uh, and so on uh but the I, ipcc really singled this out as as being important it's the first time they've done so right um i would say so and i'm a big believer that micro change drives macro change at all levels and and this is a surprise but not actually surprising if you think from a from a from a consumer perspective because if you are a big corporation and you want to change the way you decarbonize uh, there's always a lot of pushback from people who just go oh you know what you're just greenwashing you know this is all just publicity stunts so you're really not caring about the environment and i think that's where consumers can play a role if, if consumers tell all major corporations that this is what we want. We all want to strive for better climate. We want to focus on, you know, we are ready to make sacrifices in our lives to make the world a better place. And those small sacrifices, you know, maybe stop having, um, you know, potato chips with a lot of palm oil so that you can stop deforestation in Malaysia. Um, you know, those sort of small things, they really make a big difference. And this is a surprise. And it's the first time that the IPCC has mentioned this, as far as I know, but definitely not a surprise from a consumer standpoint, if I think about it, it makes a lot of sense to bring that up. I'm now I'll leave the potato chip example because that's a good one. It, we should all eat less potato chips. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I blame my wife because last night we were watching uh, a television. She brought in a bag of potato chips. She doesn't do it very often. I don't do it very often, but last night we were, we were bad and we had some potato <laughs> So now I'm gonna now I'm gonna tell her about the you know the Malaysian palm oil issue and and probably that'll be the end of potato chips in our house. But nevertheless, um, my take on this I'm still I find myself being more and more of a uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the word for it, but somebody who who who, who believes that technology is going to save us and. And I think, okay, so the argument about active active transportation and public transit, I think there are there are already changes underway, particularly in urban environments, where we're going to see, and I'm using this just as one example, but but we're going to see a lot of micro-mobility and we're going to see consumers combining different forms of transportation to get to be more efficient, lower their costs, and and increase their convenience. So, you know. Like I see kids on electric scooters. Not only see kids, I see adults, you know, and older adults on electric scooters now. So you you get on your electric scooter and you boogie down to the the bus stop and and you catch an auto an, an autonomous uh, shuttle. Uh, you know, you you fold up your your e scooter 
uh, get on the, the autonomous shuttle. Uh, it takes you over to the uh, the light rapid transit train to go downtown uh, to work. And you've essentially used three modes of transportation that are all highly convenient for you, uh, all electric, and and uh, and you haven't gotten into a car. And, and, and it's worked very well for you. Uh, you. You get home by the same method and you get on your electric bike, your electric cargo bike, and you go pick up your groceries. You know, or you can yeah. pick up the kids from from daycare or, you know, whatever from soccer practice. It, it <clears throat> We're getting so many uh, new options to get around and city planners are thinking about how to facilitate that. That I think, you know, in the 20, not maybe this decade, but, but the next decade, I, I think we're going technology will be the thing that facilitates the social change as opposed to people doing it, you know, for virtuous reasons. Yeah, I totally agree. I think technology will definitely play a major role there. Um, the biggest question though, or a pushback that I would that I would see happening, especially in developing economies, is the lack of infrastructure. Um, you know, uh, if you look at, say, for example, developed economies, like I said earlier, they are in a much better place to get going with these technology innovations. It's easier for them to implement it. And I also see in terms of, you know, deployment timelines, if someone's just digging up a, a street around my house, you know, it's 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 all the, the work is completed in a week. That doesn't happen, you know, in other countries. It takes longer. It can cause inconveniences to other people. And the need for infrastructure also requires a lot of investments. And if you have, you know, other priorities that are, you know, either short-term or long-term, then would people be willing to invest the money to get that infrastructure? I think that's the question that we still have to wait and see. Again, comes down to our first point that policy is going to be that driver. And if, and, you know, it's it's a vicious circle because you have consumers in your policy and consumers drive policy and policies, policies can drive consumer behavior. It just remains to be seen which point will, you know, ignite that first step. Now, um, we're going to get to the, to your three takeaways. So the first takeaway is the mix of renewable energy required. And the reason I left the takeaways to the end is because for a lot of our listeners, um, these are not going to be, these will be topics that they probably heard discussed quite a bit and, and, and know uh, a fair amount about. So the first one, uh, first takeaway is mix of renewable energy required. Uh, wind and solar will dominate large amounts of wind and solar. I mean, you know, 2022 has already been an amazing year for for solar in particular around around the world. And I, I wanted to make a point uh, that uh, came up uh, in my interview with your colleague, uh, Chloe uh, uh, Harara. Uh, and in, in my introduction to this episode, I call it episode 91. And I just realized that it's actually episode 92 and the, the interview with Chloe was episode 91. So listeners, I, I apologize. I'm a math challenged at the best of times. Uh, but my, my point here is that Chloe and I talked about the uh, three really exciting types of long duration storage, which will go a long way to, uh, facilitating the deployment of of wind and, and and solar, and those technologies are really at the cusp. They're either economic and being deployed now, or very very soon will be, and that will lead more than likely, I think, to a step change in the pace of 
adoption of wind and solar. We'll see it, it you know, accelerate even more. Would you agree or disagree? Um, I think the storage side of the question, whether it's long duration or not, I think is out is not going to completely affect how we are going to install wind and solar. I think right now the world is scrambling to add renewable energy capacity in any form. And if that means adding solar and wind right now, they're just going to go, you know what, we'll figure out the problems later. I think that's the outlook we have right now. Um, again, to, to bring into perspective why storage is important is that, you know, solar and wind are intermittent resources and it's going to cause a lot of imbalances. Uh, we have a great study from the German uh, uh transmission system operator who you know gave a breakdown of where storage or what form of storage would be important with percentage penetration of renewables into the grid um and if you look at like if at, at the moment you cross like 60 percent of intermittent renewables added to the grid you would need like long duration storage so that's where storage will play a role um i feel that a lot of countries should understand that solar and wind is of course one of the solutions but not the only solution to get us there for example, if you look at Norway, Colombia, where you have good hydropower sources, hydropower is renewable, it's controllable and dispatchable, which means you can control your grid and not face bottlenecks. So it's down to, you know, system sizing is a big problem today, wherever you go. And it's about understanding what sources are best, you know, locally available and what's the mix that you want to choose to get there. So storage will definitely be a part of it. But that capacity will depend on what are the different sources that you have with you. Right. I, I would agree with that. And I think that the, the fact that each region uh, or country will choose the mix of generation and distribution technologies that are best suited to its power grid, its, its, uh, uh, you know, its load, which is determined by what type of an economy it has, that sort of thing. Uh, and what one of the reasons I'm encouraged by that is, is that we now have so many more technologies than we did a decade or two ago. That we can, I mean, we've got, we've got grid enhancing technologies that allow us to send more electricity down transmission lines. We've got, I mean, we've got artificial intelligence that can better match load and, and supply. I mean, we've, we've, there are so many new technologies. I mean, the utility business model uh, is being transformed. Uh, to a greater or lesser extent, depending on which economy you're in. But I have a question for you, and, and you, and you again uh, reminded me that I should I should be careful of of checking my biases about developed versus <laughs> less developed economies. But so this is a question in that vein, which is that there are countries, let's say in Africa, that's terrific solar potential, but still has infrastructure problems, still has a, a large percentage of its population. It isn't being, you know, doesn't even have electricity. Is this an opportunity to do what they did with telecom, where they just skip over all of the, you know, building a big power grid and that sort of thing. And they build, you know, wind and solar everywhere. And, and they build microgrids or regional grids that, that sort of thing. How do you see that unfolding? I think in all those regions that you specifically mentioned, microgrids are going to play the biggest role uh, for a variety of reasons. I think uh, if governments understand, uh, I remember there was a study from Brazil where they said that 70% of their, uh, uh, you know, they're expecting 70% of their solar power to come from distributed sources. And distributed sources, um, you know, the challenge is in implementation 
because what happens when everyone produces solar at the same time and what do you do you know and you can't use it so you need a lot of policies to come in there and help consumers you know think about how to introduce demand flexibility how can you manage the power that goes in but like you said i completely agree with you i think in those regions microgrids are going to be the major stakeholder when it comes to power generation and i think that's the way to go they have to look at that as an option well, let's talk about takeaway number two, which is that industrial sectors must electrify and transition to alternative base materials like carbon, hydrogen, and waste materials. Now, this is fascinating because I just came from Calgary a couple of weeks ago in Alberta, Canada, for, for those who maybe not be familiar. Calgary is the epicenter of the, sorry, Alberta is the epicenter of Canada's oil and gas industry, and Calgary is the place where uh, all the head offices, kind of like the Houston of of canada so what i i, I interviewed uh, a young engineer who was leading a company that is in a test facility right next to a natural gas plant and so they get uh, flue gas uh captured co2 and it gets uh, uh filtered and so they get a a, a stream of fairly uh, pure co2 and what they've done is their innovation is to uh, in, uh, integrate it into cement. So they they capture the cement, they lower the GHG emissions associated with the creation of that cement, and they actually get a, a superior product. He says, and that and their and, and and their process, he says, can be scaled, and they're ready. They're ready to scale it, and and uh, they'll be doing that over uh, the next uh, f- the next few years, and. Those kind of innovations give me hope that we will decarbonize our industrial sector quicker than we had thought. What's your take? Well, that's a tough one to answer, to be honest with you, Uh, because I think if you look at the industry in general and electrification of the industry, most of the industries that, I mean, the, the word, when we think about industry, I think the two biggest names that come up are steel and cement, right? And steel and cement are the ones that are also very carbon intensive processes, which means that you need a large amount of heat as well. Um, so those are the things to consider. And decarbonizing those industries and electrif- electrification of those industries is a tough one to handle because they are high temperature processes. And if you look at normal heaters, for example, you're not going to get there with just uh, you know, a, a filament that glows in the dark, you know, like, like a tungsten filament. So I think electrification is slightly a stretch. Um, um, I would say that, you know, electrification is important, but the temperatures that you have to consider from a technical standpoint and what can you achieve with pure electricity is to be considered. I think, um, you know, apart from using hydrogen for maybe feedstock as an alternative feedstock, I think we should also see if hydrogen can play a role in, you know, high temperature combustion and heat and whether that heat can be used in decarbonizing these processes. I think that's the major challenge and maybe that's the way to go about it right so uh, electrification isn't suitable in uh, industrial applications above a hundred a thousand c i i gather mm-hmm. from your your report and uh the there's a an economist that i follow very closely i've interviewed him a number of times dr chris Bataille, 
who um, lives in British Columbia as I do. And, 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 and I follow him closely on, on Twitter because he talks, he's involved in international organizations that are, are strategizing around the decarbonization of steel and other, and cement and other, other industries. And I've noticed in just the last six months, say, uh, that Chris is a lot more optimistic now than he was uh, about our ability to more rapidly decarbonize these sectors. And he's, you know, they're seeing, we're seeing governments subsidize the uh, use of uh, electric arc furnaces in, in steel making, for instance. And <clears throat> so the technology is there. It's not quite economic yet. It's not competitive with, with fossil fuel heat. But on the other hand, uh, it is, you know, governments are stepping up and saying, okay, fine, we'll de-risk this uh, for the industry. And hopefully as the, this, these technologies scale up and get manufactured at scale, then the cost will come down and, and we'll see a faster uh, adoption. So anyway, uh, again, I'm, I'm going to be a techno-optimist here and say that I think we're, we're seeing just in the last little while some movement in this, in this particular area uh, that gives, uh, gives one hope that might get there yet. Yeah, um, I think uh, Lux recently wrote a report where uh, we said that, uh, so if you look at SSAB from Sweden, they are trying to man manufacture decarbonized steel. And our take is, and our outlook on that is that it's going to take almost 20, 2045 for them to get there, which is like 25 years away almost, um, which is a long time. So it is true that there are a lot of technologies out there, but they're not economic enough to get us there. And scaling up is, of course, the challenge. Um, policies will definitely play a role in increasing fossil fuel prices and maybe introducing uh, mechanisms like carbon offsets or carbon credits uh, that can help us get there quicker. But I still think that the electrification of the industry is about 20 years away. I still think that. Okay, fair enough. Well, let's talk about takeaway number three, which is that uh, carbon uh, dioxide removal uh, is now an is now essential to all pathways to 1.5 C, regardless of net zero success. And I'm I'm a bit confused here because it was not that long ago. It might have been 2020, late 2021. Uh, the IPCC uh, released a report in which it it argued that carbon capture uh, utilization and storage, uh, which I think was the focus here uh, of that report, uh, is is not economic. Uh, there, we're, we haven't scaled it yet. We don't know. There are a lot of risks around scaling it and, and was generally, um, didn't favor putting a lot of emphasis on CCUS. And now it seems that this report has reversed that and says that it's essential and, and it, it has to be scaled up fairly quickly. Uh, have I read this right? And if I have, why has there been a, a, a flip-flop by the IPCC? So uh, before I say, um, so I'm really not the expert in carbon capture. So I really do not know how the technology has evolved over the last couple of years for IPCC to change. But I guess the biggest factor why IPCC changed uh, from, from my eyes is probably because they realized that we are just, you know, producing carbon at a rate that we have never done before. You know, it's just too high and it doesn't look like we're going down. If you look at the pandemic, for example, you know, immediately when we had a lockdown, you know, carbon emissions just, you know, plummeted. 
And then we are now seeing that air travel is back up to pre-pandemic levels. We are seeing carbon emissions going back to pre-pandemic levels. And I guess even a pandemic cannot stop us from, you know, emitting as much carbon as, uh, you know, you know, as we have before. So I think that's the reason why they flipped the switch and they said, you know what, carbon capture is the way to go because the mechanisms that were supposed to curb emissions are not working well for various reasons. And the only way we can now get to that level is by capturing the carbon that we have already emitted. Right. Fair, fair enough. And, and I think that um, uh, there's another angle to this. Uh, we, I, we don't have to get into it here, but I just want to mention it for my listeners. And that is I'm becoming increasingly interested in the use of carbon, uh, captured carbon as feedstock to make materials. And the Chinese are very advanced on this. We're starting to see it a little bit in uh, in Canada. Uh, there is a uh, power company called Capital Power uh, that will be putting in a CCUS unit on a couple of its uh, gas-fired plants and then making carbon nanotubes uh, out of that CO2. And they'll they'll plan to sell those into the – apparently there's a commercial market for carbon nanotubes. And uh, my understanding from um, – uh, uh, from China. I mean, you can make vodka, you can make soap, you can make all, you know, cloth, you know, the, for, to make clothing. I mean, there's all sorts of uses for it. Uh, and it seems that the material manufacturing uh, is uh, an, an area of extreme opportunity, uh, particularly for comp uh, 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 markets like Alberta that have a tremendous amount of carbon that they plan to capture uh, and don't have any of this industry. And it, it'd be very interesting to see if they can make a pivot into uh, using uh, captured CO2 as a feedstock. So anyway, just a, an aside there for, uh, for listeners. It's, it's an issue that I think that we'd need to pay more attention to. And I'll see if I can't find uh, an expert in the next little while uh, who can address because I'm particularly interested in what the Chinese are doing around this because apparently they're, they're quite advanced. So anyway, Karthik, thank you very much for this. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate your, your insights and we'll look forward to uh, chatting with you again about these issues. Thank you so much. Pleasure to share my thoughts.